Hey, good morning, Forest Park. Great to see you guys today. So glad you're here. And my grandparents were pastors of a small church tucked inside a valley between two mountains most people have never heard of in southwestern Virginia. The years leading up to their ministry assignment was quite hard. They battled poverty, health problems, family stress, difficult church people. Before my grandfather began preaching, he was fond of bars and moonshine. He was an alcoholic before he was a teenager and quick-tempered. Fighting came quite naturally to him, and he could show a few scars to prove it. My grandmother and grandfather married early. She was 16, he was 19, and they started a family immediately. As a young man, he worked in a local coal mines, hard, back-breaking work, little pay. He would leave early in the morning before the sun came up and drag himself home late in the evening. The message of Jesus found its way into their meager family and turned their lives around. My grandfather put down the bottle and picked up a Bible. My grandmother put down her cigarettes and picked up a guitar. They were both excited. They began telling others of the salvation and deliverance and healing discovered in the name of Jesus. They put tents up all over the hills of Virginia and Kentucky, preaching, singing, praying, believing. As they began to get older, they settled down in a small town and took a church to pastor, maybe a little peace and quiet now that the kids were all moved out of the house and starting families of their own. But the years of alcohol and smoking greatly aged my grandfather's body and the dust from the coal mine still lined his lungs. He and my grandmother loved the people of their church so much, every Sunday morning they would take their little car and pack it full of people and pick them up and bring them to the church and then when church was over, they would take them back home and drop them off, except that particular day. October 7th, 1973, he was 58. My grandfather complained of chest pains and wanted my grandmother to drop him off at home and finish the route without him. She did. He got out of the car and walked inside. I was standing in the back seat. It was the last time I saw him alive. My grandmother was 55, still so young, full of life and hope and a future together. I was four. But I remember the tears, the crying, the look of loss in my mother's eyes, the devastation in my grandmother. You know, after my grandfather died, my grandmother couldn't sleep in a bed for a long, long time. Even when I visited her as a teenager, she slept on the couch. She, she never got over his sudden passing. She never was the same. You know, when you meet someone who has experienced a deep pain, suffered overwhelming loss, a heart-splintering, soul-crushing tragedy, you are meeting an altered person. They are no longer the same person as before. You can't lower someone you love more than life into a grave and return back to life as normal. It's impossible to watch your marriage crumble in front of you and become an adversary to the very person you pledged your life with and had kids with and remain the same. You can't pick up the charred remains of a picture album or a doll, knowing that everything you prize and the home your kids grew up in lies in ashes around your feet and then go back to being yourself. When you interact with someone who has suffered deep tragedy, you are interacting with an altered person. 
everything's different. The way they see themselves is different. The way they see others is different. Their place in this world, whether the world is good or evil, whether God is active or passive, their hopes, their dreams, everything has shifted. Some become numb. Every survival tactic has kicked in and rendered them numb to both good and bad things around them, meaning they basically don't feel much, neither positive nor negative. Others become angry, mad at the way the world functions, the randomness of it all, the fact that we live in a world where cancer kills and students shoot others and people drive drunk and swimming pools drown. A few become apathetic. They no longer care what happens. They just want to merely survive each day and eventually life will end. And here is the mistake we make when we interact with people who are grieving at a deep level. We think what they are experiencing is temporary. We assume that they will return. We describe what they are undergoing as an emotional storm and ultimately the dark clouds will roll away and the sun will shine again. So we try our best to encourage them, to stay positive, to say things that we hope will lift their spirits, remind them that they will be okay, hopeful the emotional weather is breaking and the sun is peeking through. And I think we act this way from a good heart. I know for years I did. We were just ignorant. We don't know any better. And because of our ignorance, we don't understand that the person in front of us, whether it's our best friend or sister or nephew or parent, is fundamentally different. On a sunny day, ordinary day, back in 2009, just three short months from his 40th birthday, Matt, a strong, fit, and healthy young man, drowned in front of his wife, Megan. There was no reason this should have happened. He knew how to swim, he had experience, skills, and abilities, and all of those things should have saved him, but it didn't. It was random, unexpected, and it tore Megan's world apart. And making this tragedy more complicated for Megan, she was a therapist. She had been trained for moments like this. She helped others. She was an expert, but none of her training helped her in this moment of agony. After Matt died, Megan said she wanted to call all her clients and apologize for her ignorance because Matt's death opened up an entirely different world to her a world of which she was unfamiliar. None of her training, none of her experience helped her deal with the magnitude of her husband's loss. And recently, Megan released a book called It's Okay That You're Not Okay, detailing what she learned about grief and how it fundamentally changed how she approaches others who are grieving. I want you to listen to a little bit of her words, which will, I think, come across as a soothing bomb to those of you who are grieving today or those of you who know others who are grieving. Listen to some of the things she writes. She says, you don't need solutions. You don't need to move on from your grief. You need someone to see your grief, to acknowledge it. You need someone to hold your hands while you stand there in blinking horror, staring at the hole that was your life. Some things, remember this line, some things cannot be fixed. They can only be carried. She goes on to explain most of what passes as grief support these days is less than useful 
Because we don't talk about loss, most people and many professionals think of grief and loss as aberrations, detours from a normal happy life. But there is nothing wrong with grief. It's a natural extension of love. It's a healthy and sane response to loss. That grief feels bad doesn't make it bad. That you feel crazy doesn't mean you are crazy. Grief is part of love. Love for life, love for self, love for others. What you are living, painful as it is, is love. And love is really hard, excruciating at times. Every person gathered in this room, every person watching online, you've experienced loss of some sort. And many of us are walking through small losses at this moment, but as Megan eloquently states, there are some losses that rearrange the world. Deaths that change the way you see everything, grief that tears everything down, pain that transports you to an entirely different universe, even while everyone else thinks nothing has really changed. So here's the question for today. What do we do for those who are going through pain and loss and hurt and earth-shattering grief? I mean, as a loving, caring, and compassionate human being, what do you do? And what, what might complicate it further is as a Christian, as a follower of Jesus, one who is supposed to carry the love and healing and light to others, what do you do? Now, before we get to the what, I want to bust up a few myths today, okay? And I've heard these myths from one form or another. In fact, regretfully so, I've used some of these myths in the past, thinking I was helping. And if you use some of these myths to try to bring comfort to somebody else, I'm not here to condemn you. Because as I said, I did it for a long time. I think it's probably because somebody told you this, and as a good Christian, you picked it up and you used it. But hopefully after today, you'll know a little bit better, okay? Here's one myth that we got to bust today. Everything happens for a reason. That is simply not true. This statement implies that there is a bigger and greater and more beautiful reason tragedy happens. And if we only knew the reason, if we could only see the purpose behind the scenes, then we would understand why this horrible or hideous thing occurred. Somehow in the depths of our soul, we want to believe God is somehow pulling the strings in heaven and he has a cosmic purpose for this untimely death or sickness. It makes us feel better, at least for a while, to believe that there's a grand plan going on and that the only reason that we're facing what we're facing is because God has a reason for it. Here's a couple of thoughts on this unbearable myth. One, it puts the person who is already facing so much pain in the position of trying to solve a spiritual riddle. Well, God has a reason, you just don't know what it is, and you gotta figure out what the reason is, and if you can figure out the reason, then you'll know why you're going through what you're going through, and it just complicates every single thing the person's going through even more. Now it makes God into this riddler. Listen, some things happen just because. There is no rhyme or reason. Our world is filled with random occurrences, contradictions, unfair happenings. There's no bigger reason than some drunk ran through a stop sign and hit an oncoming car than the fact that he or she decided to drink and get in the car and drive. It's part of living in a world free with people who have free will. We are capable of doing unbelievable good and unimaginable evil. To have a world as beautiful as ours, we've also gotta have a world that's capable of ugliness too. 
A second reason I don't like this myth is because it makes God the cause of evil. God does not cause horrible, painful, devastating acts of evil to accomplish his purpose. He doesn't need to do any of that. He is love, and there is nothing about him contrary to love. Every moment of every day, his love and goodness and mercy and compassion pour forth. He does not cause the death of a little girl or cancer to devastate a family. He isn't trying to get glory from it, and therefore he puts it upon somebody to try to gain something for himself. And anyone who tells you God caused tragedy is taking God's name in vain and presenting not a God, but an aberration of Satan himself. God hates tragedy, God hates death, God hates horror as much as we do, and your weeping and anger and broken-hearted reactions reflect God. It is similar to how he feels about it all. The second myth is that this will be transformed into something beautiful. No. Death and pain and tragedy and horror and funerals is not and never will be beautiful. I know what's being implied here. God will turn it around for good, and God can and often does take the most horrible of situations, and he weaves those ugly things together, and he can make something into it that is purposeful and meaningful and, and beautiful. God can take horrible things in my own life and in your life and work those things together and come around, and you go, how did God do it? Only God could do something like that. Yes, God can and often does that, but that was never his original plan. The problem with this myth is it makes people who are suffering think that they just gotta wait and see how God turns it around. And if a year later you're still grieving or five years later you're still grieving, then we say, well, if you could just see the beauty in it all, if you, if you would just give it more time, then somehow this, you would be able to see the, the glory in this and the beauty in this. No. It's your fault, in other words. The third myth is time heals all. Eventually, you'll move on. Well, the truth is you will move on because you don't have another choice, but it doesn't mean you're healed. Time does not heal all. If you are a wounded 20-year-old and you don't deal with those wounds and the things that happen to you when you're 50, guess what you are? A wounded 50-year-old. Time does not automatically heal. Time provides space to learn, coping skills, new habits, and allows us to process what happened, but it does not mean that we're automatically healed. This myth gives people the impression that they only need time, and when a specific amount of time passes, then they should be better. Folks, you can't hurry grief. Everyone processes grief differently. There's no amount of time that should be used to measure against anybody else. Each of these three myths shift the responsibility of getting better onto the person already experiencing unbearable loss. And most of these myths, and there are others, are repeated because we don't understand life, we don't understand God, and we don't know what to say, so we come up with something. Pain and tragedy doesn't make sense to us, so we come up with something we think makes people feel better, but often it makes them feel worse. So can we tell the truth? And as a follower of Jesus, can we please tell the truth? As people who boast of following the way, the truth, and the life, 
Can we please show the way and tell the truth and provide life to those who are suffering unimaginable loss? And here's part of the truth. And it's gonna go down, and for some of us, it's gonna go down sideways, okay? But just bear with me as we move through this message. Here's part of the truth. Some things in this life do not make sense. There is no rhyme or reason for them. There is no higher purpose or greater good or more beautiful things underneath. They are horrible, they are terrible, and they are contrary to everything about who God is and what he wants for you in this world. We live in a world that is off track, upside down, inside out. Good is often considered evil and evil is often considered good. Never assume what you are experiencing is how it is intended to be. There is a gaping hole inside of you and I'm sorry. I don't have the answers, I don't have easy fixes. Simply praying won't fix it. Reading the Bible alone won't fix it. There's no magic, there's no easy steps, there's no simple way forward. I am sorry and God is sorry. And I am here to hold you and love you even when nothing makes sense and even when being held is the last thing you want. There is healing available and there is hope and one day you can count on this. He will wipe away every single tear and you will be restored and everything stolen from you will be given back to you multiplied many times over but not today. It is a process and it is hard but I'm gonna be here for you every step of the way. Now that, my friend, is starting to tell the truth. So what can we do, Scott? Galatians 6, carry each other's burdens and so you will fulfill the law of Christ. We live in this world. We live in a world filled with pain and sorrow and tragedy and hurt. We live in a world filled with disappointment. And the people sitting around you right now are carrying burdens and some of them you have no idea what they're carrying. Tragedy, loss, disappointment, hurt, on and on it goes. And we are called in this world until we get to the next one, if you will, to carry the burdens of other people. And Paul tells us that if we carry the burdens of others, we will fulfill the law of Christ. I believe this one verse contains everything we need to know in order to help those around us who are hurting. In fact, if we followed this one verse, if we carried each other's burdens, the shift within Christianity today would be massive. Paul the apostle tells us by carrying each other's burdens, we fulfill the law of Christ. That's pretty heavy. What is the law of Christ? What is it? John 13. This is how everyone will know that you are my disciples, when you love each other. The first right before that says, I give you a new commandment, love each other. Just as I have loved you, you must also love one another. This is how everyone will know you are my disciples, when you love each other. That's what it means to fulfill the law of Christ. To fulfill the law is to love each other. And one of the most effective ways to love your brother 
One of the most effective ways to love your sister is who's carrying a load too heavy for them to carry is to bend down, humble yourself, get up underneath and shoulder some of that weight. You can't take it all, but you can take some of it. And in taking some of the weight, you fulfill the law of Christ, which is to love each other. If we understood this one verse, if Christians across this nation understood this one verse, the shift would be incredible within our nation. If we would simply come along other people and up underneath them and hold some of the weight in their life. In essence, you become Jesus to your brother. You become Christ to your sister. Isaiah 53, 4. It was certainly our sickness that he what? Carried. And our sufferings that he bore. So when you do the same for others, you are becoming like God to them. Now in order to carry, we gotta descend. We gotta bend ourselves and contort ourselves low enough to get up underneath another's burden and lift some of that weight. If you wanna love someone who's hurting, if you wanna love someone who's grieving, here's a couple thoughts, okay? First, it's not about you, it's about them. It is difficult to remember this sometimes. We wanna know that we're successful. We wanna know if what we're doing is helping. Is it working? Am I making a difference? I wish they would just let me know that what I'm doing is helpful. Hey folks, it's not about you. It's not about you. Just love them, whether they ever thank you, whether they ever say you're helpful, just love them. And the second thought is connected to that. It is really hard to love someone in pain. It is really hard. When a person is in pain, he or she is not thinking much other than their pain. They're not thinking about your feelings. They're not thinking about whether what you're doing is helping. The human heart can only carry so much emotion and remain focused on a few tasks. A person who is in pain is not themselves. Their brain shuts down certain functions in order to allow them to survive. Don't judge them in their pain. Just love them. Don't judge them, just love them. Well, Scott, how can we love them? I'll give you three things, okay? Very simple, but if we can learn to do these, we will help carry burdens and help fulfill the law of Christ. First, be present. It is simple and as profound as that, be present. One of the most helpful things you can do is to refuse to be another person who tries to make it better. It's not better. A week later, it's not better. A month later, it's not better. You wanna help? Don't put more of a burden on your grieving friend by making him or her feel like they have to make you feel good by assuring you that what you're doing is making them feel better. I have done this so many times, subtle, things like this. Hey, I've been praying for you to feel better. Do you, do you feel my prayers? I've been asking Jesus to comfort you. Can you feel his comfort? I hope you know how much I love you. Do, you. do you know how much I love you? Hey, be honest. Do you feel better? Do you feel better than you did last month? Do you feel better than you did the month before? You know, I feel helpless. Is there anything I can do? You see, all of that is asking them to tell you what to do to love them. Don't put any pressure on a grieving person to get better. Just love them. Just be present in their life. 
Let me let you know on a secret when someone goes through tragedy. It's not better. They're doing the best they can every single day to thrive, to just survive. Just love them where they are. No amount of praying and chicken pot pie will make the loss feel better. Don't try to numb their pain. When someone's going through soul-shattering pain, nothing you can do will numb them. Just be present. Let them feel the pain and be there when they do. Well, Scott, what, what can I say during these moments? Well, here's some words that you can use. Three little phrases. One, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Simply acknowledge how sorry you are that what they're going through is so painful. And you cannot imagine what it must be like to face it every day. I'm sorry. I'm sorry this happened. I'm sorry that the diagnosis is like this. I am sorry this happened in your family. I'm sorry about your job. I am sorry. I don't have any answers for you right now. I, 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 I don't know why things, I, I, I'm sorry. The second phrase, I don't know. I don't know. Don't try to come up with cute or trite little statements to make them feel better. Just admit it, I don't know. Well, why did God, I, I don't know. Well, why did this person and, and, and not me? I don't know. I don't know. Life is complicated. Life is sometimes disappointing. And I don't know. And here's the third one. I'm here. A constant reassurance that they can count on you. You are sorry for what they're going through. You don't have all the answers, but you are going to be there through the entire process to the best of your ability. This is about you being present in whatever way they need you to be present forever how long they need you to be present. Psalm 34, 18. The Lord is near the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. To be like Christ to someone is to come alongside them in their pain and just be there. Psalm 23, 4, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Where? In the valley of the shadow of death. You are with me when I am afraid. You are with me when I'm going through the hardest part of my life. You are with me. Sometimes you just need somebody to be with you. That's how you help. Number two, be a bridge. This has to do with suspending weight in another person's life. This is about becoming a support for somebody else. A bridge, trucks go over it, cars go over it, it suspends the weight between the two, cas the two mountains or whatever. A high bridge holds up the weight, suspends some of the weight, distributes it, distri distributes it in different areas. We can be a bridge in someone's life to take some of the weight off of them, some of the load off of them, to relieve some of the pressure in their lives. When someone is walking a painful road, as I mentioned, their brain shuts down certain functions and channels the energy to surviving. But life continues on. Bills arrive, pets have to be fed, cars have to be fixed, clothes have to be washed, 
Houses have to be cleaned, yards have to be mowed, groceries have to be bought. Sometimes that is the weight that needs to be relieved in their lives. They can't think about everything. They can't get it all done. They need help. They need someone to be a bridge in their life. But you know what? Most of the time when you ask them, hey, is there anything I can do? Nine times out of 10, you know what you hear? No. When there's lots to be done. They can't think about everything going on in their life. Be present and be a bridge in their life. You want to support them? Follow this rule. See a need? Meet a need. Here's a great way to help someone and to be present and to be a bridge in their life. Hey, I'm going to be by on Saturday to mow your grass. Is that okay? That's it. You just do it. Hey, you know, I was thinking, I go to the grocery store every Thursday evening. I'm going to pick up some food. I'm just going to bring it here to your house. Just give it to you. Just don't worry about it. And if there's anything I didn't pick up, when you see what I bring, if there's anything else you want, let me know. Be happy. I'm going to do it every Thursday for the next month. Hey, I noticed that your truck needs some new tires. Don't worry about it. I got it. What's that? That's being a bridge in their life, holding up, meeting the needs in their life. The third thing I'm going to give you today. Let's be a listener. Sometimes the most loving, kind, gentle, compassionate thing you can do is simply listen to a grieving heart. Their soul is bleeding. Their mind is twirling. Sit down, stand still, and listen. Loving someone in pain is hard. They're not themselves. They've shut down certain functions of their brain. They're in survival mode. They're not thinking about all the things that need to be done. They don't even know what their own body needs sometimes. That's how we carry one another's burdens. We come along and fill in the gaps. Loving someone in pain is hard, and what you hear is gonna be hard, and you're gonna wanna provide answers, and you're gonna wanna take away the tears. You can't. What you can do is listen. Listen to their fears. Listen to their questions. Listen to their pain. Listen to their confusion. Listen to their memories. Listen to their stories. Just listen. For many grieving people, nobody listens to them. There's lots of talking, lots of noise, lots of activity, but rarely does anybody sit down with someone who was hurting and say, I'm going to sit here as long as you want and listen to everything you have to say. Tell me. I want to know. Now, everybody look at me for just a moment, okay? We're going to go in just, just a moment, I promise. Why am I presenting a message like this? Why, why, why so detailed and so practical about people who are going through grief? Why? What I'm talking about today is what it means to be Christian. And I'm using Christian as a verb, not a noun. I mean being present in the lives of people who have suffered loss, being a bridge for them, relieving pressure from their lives, and listening to their stories is Christian. It's Christ-like. The mission of Forest Park is to help people follow Jesus one step at a time. And the behavior I've described today is what set the Christians apart in the first century. They loved one another. 
Jesus said, here's how people will know you are my disciples because every Sunday morning you go to church. Here's how people will know you, you follow me because on the back of your car, you're gonna have honk for Jesus bumper sticker. Here's how people are gonna know you are my disciples. You got a coffee mug at work that has a cross on it. You got a fish on your Bible. Here's how people are gonna know you are my disciples because you know all the lyrics to all the new worship songs. Here's how people are gonna know you are my disciple. None of that. Here's how they're gonna know. They're gonna watch your life and they're gonna watch somebody else's life who's hurting. And they're gonna see you go over there and take some of the weight off. They're gonna see you get up and press pause on some of the things in your life you want and you're gonna go over there and meet the needs in that person's life and they're gonna say, they love one another. They must be like Jesus. People are gonna know that you are a follower of Jesus because of what I've described today more than almost anything else you do. It's one of the reasons why that we came up with the Hope Conference this April. A conference for both men and women to just come together and do everything we can as one little church to bring hope to people. Because people need hope. In the middle of all the mess of this world, they need hope. And what we want to do is speak hope into people's lives and give them some handles to carry some things, to come along people and get up underneath them and say, you know what, you've got a lot of weight going on in your life right now. I, I just want to come underneath you and hold you up for a while. You've got, you got a few miles to go here, and, and I, want you to, I don't want you to walk it on your own. Here, here I'm going to take this, I'm, I'm, I'm going to pick that up. I'm going to hold that for a while. I want you to listen to me very carefully, okay? Very carefully, because this is from my heart. I am more interested in you following through with what we've talked about today than I am you knowing all the lyrics to the songs we sing and you lift your hands at the appropriate times. I want you to love people in their pain and fulfill the law of Christ more than I want you to have a yearly Bible reading plan. I want you to do what we've talked about today more than I want you to just share your testimony with somebody at work. I want you to meet people in their pain and sit with them and give them hope more than I want you to make a bunch of promises to God. I want you to be Christian, not necessarily be a Christian, two different things. Last verse, we're going to go. Acts 2. This is a descriptive passage. This is written to tell us what the early church was like. This was someone looking at the early church and saying, let, let me tell you kind of what they did. Let me, let me tell you what they, how they acted. Let me tell you how they functioned. Here's a window into the early disciples. The believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, so they loved learning. They loved getting into the depths of things. They loved it. They devoted themselves to it and to the community, to their shared meals and to the prayers. A sense of awe came over everyone. God performed many wonders and signs to the apostles and all the believers were united 
and shared everything. Now, when we say shared everything and they say shared everything, it's a little different the way they said it. Here's an example of how they shared everything. They would sell pieces of property and possessions and distribute the proceeds to everyone who needed them. Every day, every day, every day, they met together in the temple and in their homes. They shared food with gladness and simplicity. They praised God and demonstrated God's goodness to everyone. And as a result of that, because they loved one another, because they got together, because they carried one another's burdens, shared food, hey, you need this, hey, I got three of them, I'm gonna sell two and give you a couple. Because they cared, the Lord added daily to the community those who are being saved. That, my friend, is what I want. That is what I want to see happen here. And it starts by just getting involved in the lives of people and contorting and bending ourselves low enough to come up underneath them and say, you know what? You got a long way to go and it looks like you got a lot of weight. You can lean on me. You can lean on me. Let's pray. Father, this morning in our early huddle, some of our volunteers gathered and we just shared some needs. I'm just amazed at how we can get just a handful of people together and there be so many needs. And I know that's multiplied by 10, by 20 across these services today. There's people sitting in this room who are going through unimaginable pain. As Ashlyn mentioned a few minutes ago, anxiety. That's one of those private things that some people battle with that other people don't know anything about, but it's a weight. There's people gathered here watching online who are going through financial pressure. They don't know how they're gonna get it all paid. They don't know how they're gonna do it. They're going through marital battles. They're going through physical diseases. They're going through doctor's visits and they're going through all kinds of, God, we've got a church filled with people who have burdens. God, would you allow this message today to ignite something inside of us to where we will come alongside one another and lift that weight, to just be present in someone's life, just be here, and to be that bridge to suspend some of the weight and then be a listener. And God, I want people. It's not my goal, but I hope as a result of us loving one another, people will see that and say, my, how they love one another. Look how they share burdens. Look how they come alongside one another. I wanna be part of that community. I wanna be part of that kind of life-giving place. God, let your spirit blow in our hearts, blow the dust out, blow the stuff that just keeps us so removed from one another. And may we love each other and love you Bring hope, bring life in the name that is above every name, the name of Jesus, amen. Hey, next week, no, two weeks, we're gonna begin a brand new series here at Forest Park called Asking for a Friend. And we wanna know, I think it's gonna be a unique series in that we're gonna take the questions you ask and we're gonna do the best we can to answer them. So we're collecting them online. We're collecting them through written uh, questions. We have a little box out in the hallway. 
And if you'll take a moment, maybe at the end of this service or whatever, and maybe write a question that you have, and you can drop it in that box. You don't have to put your name on it. It's all anonymous. If you want to put your name on it, that's fine too. We're going to collect all those questions, and we're going to divide them up. And then I'm going to be up here each week along with a staff member, and we're going to answer maybe four to six questions every week and do the best we can to give some answers to some of the questions you have. We might not be able to get to all of them, but we'd love to know what you're thinking. So you can see the post online. We have it available, asking for a friend. Just click it, anonymous. Nobody knows who's asking the questions. If you don't want to do it online, you can do it right there in the card that's in the back and uh, fill it out, drop it in the box, and we're going to have a great series. Thank you for coming today. Love seeing you here, and uh, hope you have a great week. We'll see you soon.